everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. You know, normally at this point, uh, my voice would be pretty chipper, and we'd have a lot of fun, and I'd make some jokes, uh, but this past week has been pretty heavy. Um, there's been a lot of news coming out of Nashville. You might have seen the story of the shooting in the school and the horror that that unleashed upon not just that community there in Nashville, but across the nation. And I think just the idea of evil and the starkness of death, especially when it comes to nine-year-old kids, is really challenging. And again, I'm not trying to be heavy and I'm not trying to bring down the mood, but I think it's something that we just have to reckon with as humans. Like, what do we do with this? And I'm really grateful for Easter. I'm really grateful that that's coming up. We get to celebrate a God who doesn't sit idly by, who in the middle of our confusion has promised he is acting and will act decisively at the end to end death and to end evil and to banish it from his good earth, his good world, his kingdom, and that Jesus is the first fruits of that and that Jesus is the representative and the Messiah and the King who that's what he's working toward. And that's why Easter is such good news. And uh, our hearts go out to those who are mourning and our hearts go out to all those, not just in Nashville, but in, in our community who are going through some really tough stuff, um, who are experiencing real loss for whom their only hope really is that God is what he promised, that Jesus really is what he says, a compassionate King who will not just come to conquer death, but even lay down his life for his, his people. Um, that that's the extent of God's love for God. So loved the world that he came to bring life and not just a little bit of life, but life overflowing, not just sort of some life, but life forever and ever. And that's, that's the promise. So, we're going to talk about that. We're in the in the book of Matthew as we continue on our trek. And today we come to one of the stranger stories in the New Testament, but one which is strangely resonant in, in light of this past week's events. So Jay Kim is here to talk about that. Uh, we also have some other resources that we mention in the podcast, so stay tuned to those. And uh, with that, let's just dive right in. see you good to see you so okay let's just talk about the elephant in the room okay because <laughs> it's, it's this passage is just one of the weirdest stories in the entire gospel narrative yes it's just really strange yes it is strange. so that is true to recap jesus goes across a lake there's a giant storm he stops the storm comes to this region across the lake that's not particularly Jewish. It's not Jewish. Right. It's in the Decapolis. Right. A region called a region. Which is 10 cities, basically. It's a large region. Deca means 10. Polis means cities. It's so, a large region. Yeah. And there's this, well, one gospel account says one. Well, it concentrates on one. And good, yeah, but both of those towns slash cities are in the Decapolis. In, in this so, area. Very Gentile with with significant Jewish populations as well. Right. But and, Gentile areas. But then what's... Hence uh, the pigs. Right. Hence the pigs. Yeah. Pigs are unclean animals. Yes. And Jewish people cannot eat them. They are not kosher. Right. But clearly here, 
there's a, something going there's on. There's business. Yes. Yeah, it's a herd of huge pigs. Lots owned by lots. people. Here. And there's a demon possessed man, or two, depending on two which and Matthew's two and Matthew, Mark and Luke. Which were maybe count. we should talk about that because we didn't get into it too yeah. much in the. So some people could read that and they would say, "Wait, two of the accounts in Mark and Luke have one demon possessed man. Right. The other one in Matthew has two demon possessed men. What's going on with that? Correct. So before we even get into the story, how do you how do you help people make sense of that? Some people say, "Well, Matthew's just concentrating on the two that he saw." And Mark and Luke are only concentrating on the one that maybe continues on in the story. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Right. That's some people are like, well, we uh, maybe he's combining stories, but these stories are so unique. Yeah. How do, how do you help people think about that? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, other than to share what different scholars and theologians seem to say. So, um, uh, Craig Blomberg. He he mentions, you know, if you do, if you notice, Mark and Luke don't say that there was only one. They do. To not. your point, they don't. They just talk about one. Yes. So Blomberg says, well, maybe they're doing this to emphasize one out of two or several demoniacs, like um, the ten lepers that come to Jesus and right. they focus on the one. Yeah, yeah sure. that would be that one happens. way of doing it. Um, Michael Green, a British scholar, he talks about how. And it's not just him. There's uh, precedence for this. In ancient Judaism, um, sometimes the the presence of multiple characters in stories is used to represent the idea that this happened more than once and that Matthew is essentially um, sort of compiling multiple stories in one particular narrative. And I know that for the modern Western mind, that might get into like, well, then is he making stuff up? No, he's not making stuff up he's storytelling the way ancient writers typically would tell stories so that's another uh, way to think about it um yeah and then s- some i think would say that uh it was some of it is just basically matthew is highlighting sort of his experience there were probably lots of people in these parts um, we know it from the rest of the gospel stories which is consistent throughout all the gospels that he heals many demon-possessed people. So there were many demon-possessed, you know? And by many, I don't mean like 80% of the population was demon-possessed. <laughs> it's not... But I mean, for Yeah, Jesus, we're not in L.A. with Dodger fans. I mean, my goodness. Wow. Sorry, Dodger fans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah, that, that right. Matthew is making a point here um, and highlighting a couple. So yeah. anyways, there there are ways to understand this where... They're not in contradiction to each other. Yeah, one commentator said, it's like, hey, I went to the mall and I saw Steve and Dana. And somebody says, hey, I went to the mall and saw Steve. I saw Steve, yeah. And And you did. Yeah, I did. I saw both. They're not contradictory. Okay, but now that's not the weirdest part of the story. No, it's not, yeah. The weirdest part of the story is yet to come. A demon-possessed man or men come to Jesus. They start yelling at him, yelling at Jesus. Yeah. And there's a confrontation. Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs the herd of pigs run down a hill into the water and drown. First yeah. of all, tremendous waste of bacon. <laughs> Second of all... You know how many commentaries made... I, I counted. Three commentaries I read. I don't know if they were in cahoots. These are very serious academic theologians. Yes. Three different commentaries made the deviled ham joke oh. <laughs> in their commentary of this text. I, they they must have been in cahoots. I, I, I would have gone something like, demons hate bacon, don't be like demons, follow Jesus. I, something like that. You could go there. They Anyway, this has to be the weirdest account. People can access Jesus' teaching. 
his teaching on moral moral clarity, his t- even his talking about God, but the idea of a demon possessed person and then that demon being cast out or drawn out or thrown out of that person into a herd of pigs right. that then runs to its death like a suicide lemmings into water. Yeah. Super duper weird. Yes. So, right, you got to admit that. Yeah. So, first of all, I'll help people with that who say this is this reads more fantastical and ridiculous than any other part of the Bible. It's just really hard for my modern mind to get my head around it. Right. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned it in the teaching, but um, (laughs) it's going to sound like a cop-out. But it's really not. I just don't think there's enough time to do it justice. Right. But back in August, August of 2022, we did four entire weeks exploring. the, The series was called The Unseen, and we did four entire weeks exploring um the unseen realm and all not just here but throughout the scriptures all these very strange difficult to understand texts about supernatural realities so the idea is the the, first thing i would say is like go check that out it's it's very difficult for us to sit here and spend three minutes trying to explain sure other than to say the bible and the biblical worldview has no problem at all with um stuff happening beneath the surface in ways that we cannot see and um and it's actually a quite quite a sort of in terms of human history a, a much more modern phenomenon that we um, live in the sort of materialistic natural world where if you can't physically see it or touch it or feel it or smell it or whatever, yes. if you can't explain it with science or math, then it can't be real. That's a very modern... Although it might seem strange to us modern people, for most people, for most of history, and even today in most parts of the world, people would say, oh yeah, there's a sp- supernatural realm. Right. Absolutely. And to be fair, I think even here in Silicon Valley, which is so modern, postmodern, I see it in even in secular Silicon Valley, you know, um, the old Beth, we were just talking about this, the old Bethany college, which was a small Christian college in the Santa Cruz mountains. It got purchased several years ago. The, the school went out of, uh, business, uh, went defunct sadly, but the property, which is beautiful, got purchased by the wife of a major sort of tech tycoon in Silicon Valley. People you would consider very secular, but she purchased the property and turned it into a spiritual sort of enlightenment center. And it's not Christian, but it's very, you know, air quotes, spiritual. So maybe there isn't as so much of a try- rub against They're trying that to get access now. to some sort yeah, of Yeah, I think of, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I see that more when sure. I talk to people who are not Christians. Like, oh, there's, there is actually a sort of increasing openness to... The unseen. Right. So maybe it's right. not that far off for, for those of us who think right. about that. But I guess on, on the other side of this, the, the idea of demon possession, and this is uncomfortable to talk about, but it just happened this week, is I think people are thinking about evil and where it comes from. Right. Uh, this past week, we had the Nashville tragedy and the shooting and, and the Covenant School there. Yeah, last week. Um, yep. Yeah, and that was, uh, and I, I think people are thinking about evil. Can we eradicate it? With laws, is there some? Is there a force that's bigger? People are thinking about that, and you've mentioned this too. In fact, this was kind of your original opening uh, that we we kind of pivoted because of because of the tragedy. You talked about two folks in World War One who came out of World War One with very distinct and different ideas about evil, and I think that that might get us into the story because we're talking about demon possession and evil. Yeah, yeah. World War One in France, there was this intense fighting in what is now called the Battle of Somme. 
and it was in Somme, France. Allied forces against the German forces. Uh, I think it happened in 1916. And um, there are these two very specific young men who fight in that battle, on the same battlefield. One for the Allied forces and one for the German forces. And those two young men in their 20s at the time are um, Adolf Hitler and J.R.R. Tolkien. And so they literally fight on the same battlefield, see the same atrocities. Over a million soldiers during that one battle were either killed or wounded. I mean, a million it's soldiers. It's astonishing. Staggering um, loss of life. <clears throat> so Tolkien and Hitler both see and experience the same horrific atrocities. They come out of that with one sort of shared vision of the world, which is that there is clearly good and there is clearly evil. They, they share that view. The difference, the divergent paths they take, though, Hitler begins to believe that the line between good and evil is a line that runs down human beings and human societies. He believes that evil in the world is embodied in other people who are unlike him. And this leads to World War II, the Holocaust. So if we can just get rid of those bad people, then everything should the be, world be, the good. world would be better. So he kills, you know, however many millions. So the enemy Jews. is yeah. other people. Tolkien, on the other hand, begins to realize there is good and evil in the world, but it's not other people. He saw the same atrocities of that war, that battle. And for Tolkien, he realized... This, the real tragedy here is that humans killed a bunch of humans, and for what? But this didn't, this didn't just happen. There's good and evil. And for Tolkien, he realized, oh, like good and evil, it's not good people and evil people. There's something spiritual. There's something supernatural, something we cannot see happening. And humans need to participate in the difficult work that may require sacrifice of us to partner with a greater good, for the greater good, and to partner with a power greater than us to vanquish evil in the world. Because that evil is not other people, it's supernatural. And then he writes The Lord of the Rings. Right. Which, if you read it through the Christian lens, and, and there are all sorts of Christian underpinnings in that story, it's like one of the most profound you know, works of art sort of depicting what I think is really happening in the world. There's evil, um, but good people can gather together. And though we're, we're not, we don't have the strength in and of ourselves. There's a, there's a power greater than us. That yeah. Can, well, know. it's interesting, even in, in Lord of the Rings, as I reflect on it, uh, there's no one who's untouched by the right. corruption of the power. Even at the end, Frodo, the hero, yeah. he decides, hey, I'm going to keep, after all that, he's like, I'm going to keep it. Yeah. And and so he's corrupted. There's no one who's not corrupted. Right. And that's, I think, Tolkien's point, right? Yeah. That the line of human... It's not other people, yeah. that there's something bigger. It reminds me of Paul's line that we don't fight against flesh and blood. And we talked about this in the yes. unseen realm. Yeah. And by the way, just real quick, if you're interested in hearing that, you can go to westgatechurch.org slash unseen dash resources. Yeah. And, the, and there's a whole bunch of stuff there. There's a, the Q&A we did. And Dr. It, it's Brashears, yeah. utterly fascinating, yeah. mind blowing, and mind yeah, he bending. he gets deep into and they're they're time marked, so you can yeah jump you can ahead see it. it yeah he gets into demon possession and um, all sorts I, of stuff yeah I would definitely recommend yeah. it if you haven't heard it it's it's definitely worth yeah uh, Brashears head of uh, um, theology at, at Western Seminary he's a New Testament professor um, and um, 
really. Actually, no, he's just theology, yeah. Old, Old Testament and New he's Testament. He's a theologian okay. through and through. Okay, so um, let's get into this. Uh, so why is this included in the story? I wanted to draw your attention to something. that we, we, didn't, we didn't have time to get to this, but I think it's really interesting in the Gospel of Mark how Mark deals with the story. Hmm. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, let me get to it here. Uh, the way he, he includes some details, because Matthew is just, he's really interested in how exactly Jesus deals with this, and he, he destroys... Yeah, the the demons. But what's interesting is Mark includes some information about how the town tries to deal with it. Yes, yeah. And it says uh, the man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Yeah. Not even with the chains. He had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to <coughs> subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Right. I, I think it's so fascinating that the town is trying to solve this problem by like chaining him up in the tombs. Right. <laughs> it's like away from the town. Let let's try to deal with this issue, but at night you can Well, hear- he <laughs> he lives in the tombs. Right. So Matthew mentions that as well, and I think I mentioned it in the teaching. That's where death reigns. Yeah, yeah that's to, the dark area. I mean, area. they they had a very spiritual view of the world and their belief, not just the Jewish people, but most ancient People, you know, we kind of have remnants of this today. Sure. People get creeped out. But it's like, oh, Hold your that. breath when you go by yeah, the cemetery. Yeah, yeah, but they really very strongly sure. believe that there were spiritual beings everywhere, but that near the tombs is where the strongest and the, the most vile spiritual beings were. So sure. it's kind of representative of that. And he fits the brand, you know, like he is obviously utterly strong. They've got to chain him up. And they do it because he's a physical threat to the town. Yeah. You know, they got to do it. And then he breaks the chains. But they apart can't do it. They can't, the, He's the, the ultimate warrior. Remember yes. the ultimate oh, warrior just, from, yeah. uh, from war- the WWF? Yeah. He would just break all the chains. Now, yeah. You know, so. Um, or, in, yeah. So he's flexing and he's breaking his shirt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think it's funny that it's, it's not funny, but it's interesting. The town's trying to chain him up. You know, they're trying to use every mechanism they have. Right. And it's like, they got nothing. Doesn't work. Yeah. They got nothing. And it's it reminds me of that meme with the guy sitting in the in the cafe with flames all around him. This is fine. This is fine. <laughs> right. right. There's a velociraptor in my backyard. This is fine. Right. This is fine. Um I say that because they're powerless. The town is powerless against this. Yeah. With all of the best ideas they have. And right. I think that that's interesting that that Mark points that out. Yeah. But there's also a heartbreaking aspect to this. Day and night among the tombs, he would cry out right. and cut himself with stones. Yeah, I think Mark includes that to provoke sympathy. Yeah, this is a man who is tormented. Yeah, and um, I think that that's really interesting too. Did you? Um, you probably didn't, but you know that show based on the video game The Last of Us. Yeah. Yes. Did you watch it? Yes, my son and I watched every okay. episode. Yeah. I mean, very. First of all, it's pretty graphic, it's, so I wouldn't yeah. recommend it for everybody. It's kind of a zombie, but it's not really about zombies. You very, you don't really see many zombies. Yeah, it's about humans. Yeah. It's about the the relationship between this man and this young girl he's trying to protect. Anyways, um, so I did. It's based on a very popular video game, I guess. And I was talking to Jesse Fisher, who's married to Nicole Fisher, who's our, um, you know, she's on staff with us as director of uh, discipleship formation. Anyways. He played the video game, and he told me that they didn't really reflect this in the show, but in the video game, the zombies, um, when they get infected, one of the most poignant parts of the game is that 
their minds, for many of these zombies in the game, their minds stay sane and stable. But they cannot, the, the infection takes over their physical body. So he said in the game there are these scenes where these zombies are like chasing after people because their bodies thirst for, you know, it's very yeah, graphic, yeah, human yeah. flesh and stuff like zombies do. But he says there are these scenes in the, in the game where the zombies are like crying and they're like a- in anguish because they don't want to do this. Oh, but their, their bodies are good. So wow, I remember after talking intense. to Jesse about that, I read, yeah, I read these other passages and I just thought, oh, yeah, man. he's tormented. Yeah. Maybe it feels maybe like there is a little bit of the Imago Dei human left in and, there. Yeah. And so he's cutting himself. It's like, it's very poignant. Yeah. The Mark yeah. and the Luke version of the story tells us they were like homeless. Because, yeah, Mark and Luke really focus on the humanity of the man. And I love it at, at the end. Um, what it says is uh, Jesus was sitting next to him and the man was in his right mind. Yes. Uh, the. Uh, and anyone who's ever loved anyone who's like been an addict and has gotten clean right. knows a little bit about what that might look like. Yeah. Um, uh, but let's let's flip to the end because I think that there's also another human aspect. Of course, the main emphasis of this story is that Jesus has dominion over the supernatural realm and over right. evil and power. We'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I want to talk a little little bit about the human element. Yeah. Which is it's interesting. The town at the end of the story begs. Jesus to leave. Yeah. And um, I think one of the, uh, it's, it's in Matthew, the way that they kind of explain the end of the story is what's, what's the final one? What's the final line? The whole town went out to meet Jesus. Oh, and when they saw him, they pleaded with yeah. him to leave. And in, in 33, it says those tending the pigs ran oh, off, yeah. went into the town and reported everything yeah. or all the yeah. things. And then there's this word that says, including, and the commentators say grammatically, it's really interesting. It's like it's like saying it's an addition, including even what had happened yeah. to the demon possessed man. Yeah. Meaning, what they really the primary story that this rabbi killed killed our all pigs. our pigs. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's utterly. It, it's what they're fascinated. What their focus is is on the the loss of the pigs and the economic reality. Yeah, and so they beg Jesus to leave. Right, and um. P.P. Levertov, who is, who is an author and a thinker, said, um, all down the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers its pigs. Right. Swine over Savior. Uh, this, this human moment, I think, is really interesting. They beg Jesus to leave. Uh, and it seems to me the implication is because of the economic devastation. Yeah. And, and I think they don't focus on the man who's now in his right mind. Right. They don't focus on their townsperson who they've gotten back, their citizen, Mm-hmm. Uh, their request to Jesus leave makes it plain that they, they want to live on this lower level. Like just keep going here. And what Jesus is offering is so much more. And they totally ignore the fact that two members of their, their community are healed. Right. They just, it's like, Oh, we lost some pigs and money. And that's the big issue. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to the, the awfulness and the corruption of, of mankind and what Jesus is trying to rescue us from too. So there's that aspect too. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I talked about it in the teaching at Saratoga. You know, Jesus doing his work is is disruptive. It, it will disrupt your life. We, you know, <laughs> we want to... We want to sort of tame, we want to tame Jesus that comes in, does the stuff we need him to do, and then kind of gets out. But that's not how it works. You either, 
he either shows up and does his thing and it's his thing. And then we live in the sort of new world he creates or you ask him to leave town and he doesn't do his thing. There, there isn't a middle ground. And, um, I think, you know, I think that, that, that has significance for our lives today. You know, if Jesus is going to come and, um, become the center of all things, then that means we are not the center of all things, man. That means everything orbits around him. And so you either want all of his power or you want none of it. There is no, you know, I I do think that there's a sense in which the disruption that Jesus brings is pretty intense here. And I I mean that in a good way and a bad way. Um, It's deeply disruptive. I think it's beautiful (laughs) because we get two guys back who were lost. And Mark even gives some more details about the anguish they were in. And I think he wants us to see that. Mark and Luke for sure want us to see that. Right. But even in the town asking Jesus to leave, I think Matthew's trying to show us something. Yeah. That that there's a rejection of Jesus that's head scratching to everyone who reads the story. Like what? What? Yeah, but we can relate. Oh, I can relate. Not this head scratching. Not this extreme, but we want the same most of the time. It's like Jesus, you can can you just sprinkle a little Jesus fairy dust on these parts of my life, but not don't disrupt it too much. Like don't mess with my money, my stuff, my belongings, my trajectory, my plans. Just bless those things, you know, bless them. Give me a little boost. Um, but that's that's not how it works. Jesus is, uh, yeah, he does his thing or he doesn't. Yeah. There's also um, in Mark 5, um, and I, I don't mean to keep pinging. I just think it's interesting, the extra information in the other gospel accounts. The guy begs Jesus to go with him. And Jesus says, interestingly, he says no. And he tells him, he says, Jesus did not let him go. This is Mark 5, 19, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he had mercy on you. And he does. And it says that everyone in that region was amazed, which is another one of those words that keeps popping up whenever um, what said about Jesus happens. When people hear, they're amazed. And there's something really beautiful about that. He's not only, before he was a violent he was like doing violence on these on these roads, right? I yeah. mean, the people couldn't pass by, and now he's like been completely reformed, and now he's a kind of a missionary agent. He's right. a, he's a disciple um, in absentia from Jesus. It's it's a really beautiful picture of the complete healing, yeah, and the one around. Yeah, it's awesome. And it reminds me a little bit about when Jesus heals um, Peter, uh, Peter, Peter Peter's mother in law. That what's her immediate response, right? We talked about this. Her immediate yeah. response is to go and to serve and to right. and to share and and this is what this man does. Yeah. Um, so it's really fascinating. But again, the big point of this passage is that Jesus has power and authority over the principalities, and that's kind of leads us a little bit closer to Easter. Do you want to talk a little bit about Jesus being over the supernatural realm and the natural realm and back to back stories in Matthew? First the storm, then demon possession the implications of Jesus having all this power and Matthew, what's he trying to get us to see as people? Yeah. I mean, I think Matthew as Jesus's biographer, he's, he's Matthew's very Jewish and he's writing, they think to a primarily Jewish audience. So reading his biography through that lens, you realize over and over again, Matthew is trying to set Jesus up as um, the sort of rescuer that, uh, 
God's people had thought they were getting through throughout their history with different people. You know, the new Moses, the new Adam in some ways, although that's kind of a later illusion. So um, it's interesting to, uh, yeah, I think all of this is, is building toward what this past Sunday was on the Christian calendar, which is Palm Sunday, you know, and Mark at Saratoga mentioned that a little bit. And Palm Sunday is, is the Sunday before Easter when we remember that Christ entered uh, Jerusalem as a king, as a king, but a king coming on a donkey and as a king coming not to lord it over his people, but to die for his people. Nobody else knew that, but that's what was happening. So, you know, and the, the sort of symbolism of palm branches for the Jewish people was a symbol of independence and freedom. And that's what Jesus does over and over again. He 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 liberates these men from their possession, you know, to their their demon possession. They were enslaved to these evil powers and principalities, and Jesus frees them. So he is the great liberator, just as Moses liberates God liberates his people out of Egypt through Moses. You know, Matthew very intently is setting up Jesus. One of his motifs is that Jesus is the new Moses. And uh, so you see Jesus exercise his power for the sake of liber- liberation over and over again. And then Easter is the culmination of that. We are liberated uh, because Christ defeats our oppressor, which is sin and death, by dying and then rising again in resurrection. So in some ways, everything connects to Easter. doesn't matter yeah, what time of true. year, what text you're teaching. It's all sort of pointing toward death, burial, resurrection, ascension. You yeah. Know, so we you, you quoted this. I did too. Rodney Reeves's uh, commentary. He says, "For Matthew, the point of the story is this: it's time, time for the kingdom of heaven to invade earth. Time for evil to relinquish its death grip on God's creation. Yeah. The king's come. He's got power. He can do it. And we're gonna we're gonna celebrate that a lot on Easter. Yeah. Which is, can you believe it? Right. Next week." crazy it's nuts we'll so actually there. it, it kind of actually does lead right up to it doesn't yeah. it kind of yeah. does so yeah. we'll talk more about jesus's power and the beauty of that uh next week on easter and uh are you gonna are you gonna dress up do you have like an easter outfit you're gonna preach in like something bright bright has jenny bought something maybe bright green no. bow tie no something really pastel so. so bright pink maybe maybe i still have time maybe maybe we could coordinate you and who I. knows Maybe Who we'll knows? coordinate. They have to show up to find out. Yeah, it'll be great. One of the many mysteries. All right. Well, thanks, Jay, for being with us. Talking yeah, thank about you. demon possessed bacon. Yes. Next week. Deviled ham. <laughs> according to scholar and theologian Craig Keener. <laughs> what a dumb joke. Uh all right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Happy Easter almost. Yes. All right. Talk Can't to you wait. soon. Just want to say thanks to Jay Kim for stopping by. Again, if you'd like to listen to that long interview with Dr. Gary Brashears, you can go online and check us out at westgatechurch.org slash unseen dash resources. And there's the YouTube link there. And um, you can listen to the whole long rambling interview where we ask Gary, uh, Dr. Brashears, uh, a million questions about a million different things. And he was super gracious to answer them. It's really fascinating conversation. One of my favorites uh, of last year. So you can look at that. And next week again is Easter. We're so grateful and so excited to share the resurrection of Jesus with you and talk about that. So we'll be back next week and it's almost Easter time, which means it's almost, you know, legal to eat those Reese's peanut butter eggs, which are God's good gift to all of us. Uh, Unlike black jelly beans, which are, I think, Satan's 
nuclear attack on humanity. Okay, and with that, uh, we'll see you next week at Easter, and we'll see you soon.